Well, today we pick up our series through the book, the first book of the Bible, that is Genesis. And uh, obviously we've moved away from the book of Colossians. We were there for ten or around ten sermons. And now we're jumping back into Genesis, which literally means beginnings. We began the series a number of weeks ago, looking at the first uh, 11 chapters. That's chapters 1 through 11. And that basically is the first section of Genesis, uh, which covers the history all the way up until the patriarchs. So there we cover things like uh, the fact that God created all things. We cover the fall of man and the entrance of sin into the world. It's spread, so that is very clear in the first 11 chapters. We cover the flood, the Tower of Babel, these types of things. Uh, But today, we pick up our series in the second part of Genesis. So we already began looking at uh, the first patriarch, that is Abraham. And uh, for the next number of weeks, we're going to be looking at Isaac and Jacob. So these are the next two patriarchs. So the first major patriarch, we have Abraham, the father of the faith. He believed in God and was justified. He was saved. And now we turn to Isaac and Jacob. And then eventually, after this series, and then after a different other New Testament series, we're going to come back to get to Joseph and then finish off a book. So basically, Genesis is lasting like two or three years. Uh, but in our passage today, in Genesis chapter 24, you can go ahead and turn there. Abraham, he's not dead yet. He certainly is getting old. He sets about the task of getting a wife for his son Isaac. And this piece here, Genesis chapter 24, has been called a masterful piece, a romantic piece. This account that really highlights, if you're taking notes, is the main point. It highlights God's providential care for his people. If you notice, the theme was God provides, that hopefully we'll be tracking throughout the service. And we see that again here, God's providential care for his people as he fulfills all of his promises. God's providential care for his people in fulfilling all of his promises. Now, God certainly had given promises to the patriarchs in a very unique way. Okay, so we are not the patriarchs. We haven't been given the promises in the same way that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph... uh, those specific promises. So those are unique to the patriarchs, but God certainly has given us all promises. All of his children have many, many promises. And he, by God's grace, by his own grace, and his own steadfast love, is all about bringing them to fulfillment. Take Romans 8.28, for example, through 30. Let me just read you this promise. Okay, so the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, is our God too, if you have repented and believed. And this is what he promises us. He says there, and we know, right, absolute certainty, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's so certain there, this promise, it's so certain there that it's put in the past tense. 
you have already, as if it were, been glorified. I mean, what a promise that he who starts this good work of salvation, without doubt, will bring it to completion. And so we have similar promises here. Abraham certainly has unique promises, but God too is going to be working it out, working out his plan in such a way where everything he promises, he indeed will fulfill. And in that, we can take great comfort in. Just as Abraham did. Just as Isaac did. And we see again God's providential care in Genesis chapter 4 as he moves to bring about his promises. This chapter it can be broken up into uh, four different acts. Uh, four different acts. And the first act is Abraham sends his servant on a mission. All of these acts move towards getting a bride for his son. The first act is Abraham sends his servant on a mission. Find Isaac a wife. This is in verses 1 to 9. And due to time, we're not going to read the entire, uh, all the different 60 plus verses here. But this is in verses 1 to 9. So as we are invited into this story, we are reintroduced to Abraham, the original patriarch. And he is, as verse 1 says, old well advanced in years, there in verse 1. You know, when we first met him, he was much younger. He was a spring chicken at the age of 75. And for us, you know, at that age, the only plans, I mean, for you, who might be at that age, the only plans that you might be making are, you know, how to transition your children to life without you. That's a legitimate thing that many of us are thinking about. But for Abraham, God comes to him. He says, look, life is for you is going to begin at age 75. Uh, go ahead and turn back to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to review a little bit of, about what we've seen just so we can speed ourselves up in terms of the context here. Now, God here is drawing Abraham out of this pagan background. He's singling him out. He's going to build this whole entire nation upon him. In the New Testament, we know that these people are the people who have faith in God. In the Old Testament, it's Israel. But look what he says there in 12.1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, right, he's 75 years old, he says, Go, it's a command, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. The reason why God had to pursue man, Abraham in particular, was because of what happened earlier in Genesis, right? Genesis chapters 1 to 11, specifically 3 to 11. The Bible says there that God created everything. He created man to be in fellowship with him in a perfect, loving relationship with their creator. But unfortunately, because of sin, they went against God and people rebelled against him. They rejected his rule and opted instead in their own wisdom. Oh, really, I can rule myself and so I want to live as my own authority. And so from the beginning of Adam and Eve, there we see sin entered into the world and then it spread to all men. Now if man is the cause of man's problem, you see here why God is the one who has to pursue. Right? So if man is the cause of man's problem, which it is the truth, then God alone is the one who is seen to pursue Adam and Eve. Right? He draws near to them even. And then we see this regularly here in, in Abraham. We see that God is drawing, he's the one who goes to Abraham 
And, and all by his grace draws him out of this pagan background and showers all of these promises on him. Look there at, chapter, at verse 2 of chapter 12. God, all by his grace, says, And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here we see a threefold blessing that God gives him, land, people, and blessing. Those are the three things that God then showers upon Abraham, and that's really what all of Genesis is about, and in fact, the whole entire Bible is about. Because the one who would become a blessing to all of the nations is Christ, as it says in Galatians. He is the seed of blessing. Now, we could go through many different portions here of the book of Genesis, but it's so clear that God pursues and man still sins against him. God still pursues and then man sins against him, and he continues and continues to pursue, showering his steadfast love because what he promises, he never backs out of. It's a beautiful truth about God. In chapter 21, after a number of ups and downs, after a number of failed attempts by Abraham and Sarah to force the will of God, so what I mean by that is God promised that uh, their line would continue. And you know what he does to show how great he is? He draws out a barren woman, a barren couple, and he says, on you, you barren couple, I will build a nation. And you just watch and see. The problem, though, is when in fear, Abraham and Sarah, they look at themselves and think, okay, well, if the promise is really to come to fulfillment based on what I am, there's no way we can do it. And so you see them, unfortunately, kind of doing all these crazy things. Like at one point in time, they go down to Egypt, in Genesis chapter 12. I mean, right after the promise that God gives them. I'm going to build a nation on you. They fear. And so they go down to Egypt. And some bad things happen there. Elsewhere, Abraham and Sarah, they come up with a great idea of saying, Hey, look, okay, we're barren. So Sarai says, at the time her name was Sarai, Sarai says, Look, take my servant. And you have a child from her. But that too is not God's plan. Nothing can force the will of God. But in God's timing, he answers. You can't force my hand, he says, but I'm going to build this kingdom on you according to my own time and all according to my own promises. The seemingly strange thing as we continue to catch ourselves up, in Genesis chapter 2, eventually you know, they have Isaac by God's grace. First they have Ishmael, he's the Ill illegitimate son of Hagar. And then in Genesis chapter two, 22, right after Isaac is, is, is around, God calls Abraham to a test. And he says, I want you to give up Isaac and sacrifice the heir to the promises. But by God's grace, Abraham here, he's learned. He continues to believe. And as they go up on the mountain, this is what the word says. Abraham tells Isaac, Isaac, who's fearing God, will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And of course, God does provide a substitute sacrifice. I mean, how is that for God's sovereignty, his providence? Not only does he deliver Abraham and Isaac, he foreshadows for readers of the Old Testament the exact same thing that he will do for in Jesus. 
He provides the lamb for a substitutionary sacrifice. And then in Genesis chapter 3, the chapter right before 24, obviously, um, Sarai now is dead. By God's grace, she lives to see Isaac born, but it would almost seem as if this is just one big tragic story, right? I mean, does she at that point in time own any land? The answer is no. Abraham doesn't even own any land. And then her son, you know, it's, it's, he's like in the, living in the equivalent of like, you know, mom and dad's basement. Still living with mom and dad, does not have a wife of his own. There's no land. And she now has died. But again, God's providence. Perhaps just to teach Sarah a little bit more faith and what it looks like to trust in God who always works out his promises. It's actually her death that leads to Abraham buying his first piece of Canaan. And so as she is buried, her bones are laid in a tomb now because of her death that Abraham legitimately owns. So it must have been difficult for her to recognize that while she is dying and facing her deathbed that the promised son, Isaac, whom God will build an entire kingdom on, doesn't have a wife. But in God's providence, time has now arrived. Bring Isaac a wife. God is busy fulfilling all of his promises, and Abraham is steadfast. His faith is really robust there, and God is blessing him. He's showering him with blessings. Look there in 24.1. It says, The Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Sarah, too, was a blessed woman, although she didn't see all of the evidences of these blessings, yet she hoped. And here, now, we're clued into the fact that God's blessings are really coming upon Abraham. And we see here how Abraham commissions his servant here. And the story kicks off with Abraham commissioning his servant to find a wife for his son. Verses 2 and 3, you can scan those while I summarize. He says there, he's making an oath with his servant. He says, put your hand under my thigh. It's a, certainly to us today, it's a strange way of making an oath. Um, this whole gesture has reference to offspring. I'll just leave it at that. And Abraham says, look, swear to me that you will find a wife not from the people of the land, that is the Canaanites. The Canaanites were cursed by God and sunken into depravity. But he says, look, I want you to take a wife from my own people, from my own kindred, as it says there in verse 4. But the way that this is written is really just beautiful because we're introduced to immediately, right, the servant who's commissioned to go find a wife for Isaac introduces this tension here, this thing that's going to kind of haunt us all throughout Genesis chapter 24. He says there in verse 5 to Abraham, what if she doesn't want to come back to our land, but instead wants to live there? Should I bring or leave Isaac over there? So he's really asking for a contingency plan, isn't he? And you know, this isn't the first time that Abraham has had to come up with a contingency plan. If you remember back in the, the Genesis chapter 12, where they've come up with a plan to go down to Egypt, that was because of fear. And there they're fearing the Pharaoh so much that they say, look, the Pharaoh's going to kill me. What should we do? Contingency plan called for. They say, oh, well, let's go ahead and lie to get out of it. Okay, that turned out into a disastrous fail. 
That was a contingency plan that stemmed from man's own wisdom. Again, referring back to the other instance that I mentioned earlier, uh, when they looked at their bodies and they saw that they were old and that they weren't going to have a child, by all human assessment, they concocted a plan, right, to say, hey, contingency plan, have a child with Hagar, my servant. And that, was too, was a massive fail. Here, though, his servant asks Abraham for a contingency plan, but Abraham does not give one. He's learned over a number of decades here. He is old. A number of decades go by, probably three. And he answers with a robust faith in God and his promises. He says there in verse 6, See to it that you do not take my son back there. Of course, the answer is why. It says, The Lord. The God of heaven, that is Yahweh who is sovereign over all, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. <laughs> that's, that's resolve. And we as readers want to look at what's going on there and say, yes, Abraham, Abraham is clinging to God's promises, his commands, and God's desires. Okay, so what Abraham does, he believes in who God is. He is Yahweh, the God of heaven, sovereign over all. And he knows what God has done. He took me from that land, and he trusts in God's promises. He spoke to me and swore to me, that my offspring is going to have this land. Given all that, given that he knows who God is, he, or he believes in who God is, he knows what God has done, and he trusts in God's promises, he then believes in what God will do. You see, action. right? Coming from all of that knowledge, God is, God does, God promises, he then acts in faith. It's beautiful, isn't it? We cheer for Abraham as we're watching, sort of passively reading about what's going on here. He's a faith-filled man. And he stands here a very different man than when this whole thing began. You know what his first words were in Scripture? His first recorded words in Scripture? 15.3. It says, you have given me no offspring. It, it, it comes with a, a hint of doubt there. But, as Kent Hughes notes... Here, in Genesis chapter 24, his last recorded words declared an unwavering faith in God. He says, God will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. We should really be encouraged here. Particularly you who consider yourself well advanced in years. If you consider yourself old here, I think you should be encouraged by Abraham's example. Isn't it encouraging to see old Abraham at, let's just say, 100 years old, actually 100 plus, very clearly it is 100 plus, he's still flexing his God-given faith. Still. I imagine it might be a little tempting knowing, for you who consider yourself well advanced in years, or maybe you're facing some sort of illness or debilitating illness that you know will lead eventually to death. I imagine it might be a little tempting knowing that you're in the final stretch of life to look back at the many decades and you see what God has done and think, okay, well now it's coming to an end. 
And you may even be tempted to finish off your years or your days in this sort of give-up mentality, knowing that the end of your earthly race is drawing near, and so there's no real need to really press on with courage and action and faith in who God is. Maybe you recognize that your prime is gone in terms of energy, even reproductive prime. I remember a friend who was about 42 years old, just kind of going through a little slump of depression, realizing that his, uh, some things were happening to his body, and he was you know, very clearly recognizing, well, my biological purpose is over. And he was really wrestling with that. What do you do when the age of childbearing is just gone? You would talk. Beautiful. <laughs> if that's you, you know, you see yourself well advanced in years, really struggling to push on till the end. Let me encourage you to look beyond your life and think ahead to what God can do through you now. And also in the lasting memory that's going to be impressed upon all those around you. I mean, that's really what Abraham is doing, right? He knows without a doubt that his life is coming to an end. He is old and well advanced in years. Yet he says, I know who God is. He has indeed spoken to me. I believe his promises. Now you go because God is going ahead of you. You almost get the sense here that Abraham doesn't really know um, how long he's going to live. But yet he's on the sidelines of of watching his servant find a wife for his son, and he knows without a doubt God is going to do this. So you older folks, help us younger folks. Let me encourage you, help us younger folks, though many are younger here, and frankly many of us are ignorant about what it looks like to have faith in a powerful God in the midst of losing loved ones or even suffering through physical difficulty. I mean, what tremendous opportunity you have to show us and teach us what it is like to believe in God who is, rejoice in what God has done, and then to continue steadfast, trusting in God's promises, fighting to believe that God will do what He says He's going to do, even long after you're gone. I challenge you, the older generation, to take the initiative and to reach out to the younger folks. You know, along with God-given age, often comes God-given wisdom. So we're calling you to share it with us. For you younger folks. You know, you might think that maybe your life is coming to an end because you don't get the type of job that you want. You're not living in the stage. You're not experiencing God's blessings in the way in which you think is best. And maybe because of those things you feel like your life is sort of crumbling beneath you. Isn't it great to get perspective for someone who's probably lived four more decades of ups and downs before you? And yet through all of those things, even the sufferings and the difficulties, the losing loved ones and even experiencing a deteriorating body, that they'd be able to come up alongside of you and say, God's going to do what he's going to do and that we can trust in. He is a good God, and He is a God who is always with us. Beautiful conclusion of the first act there. Abraham's faith is robust. He stands there a different man than when we first began. 
An oath is made. The servant is charged. And that closes act number one. Act number two, look there, this is 10 to 28. Here, act number two, this can be titled, The Servant Finds Isaac a Wife. The servant finds Isaac a a wife. The servant sets off with ten camels and gifts for the bride-to-be as he heads to Mesopotamia, the area between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. And he goes to a city called Nahor. The question for him becomes, well, where exactly do I go to find a respectable woman for a respectable man? And today it's so easy, right? Today it is so easy to find a respectable woman or man. Uh, generally. Um, so, for example, you know, let's assume that there are many people on dating sites that are telling the truth. Let's just assume that. Uh, you, know, you can sign up online at one of these dating sites, fill out an application, answer a bunch of questions, fill out a bunch of profile stuff, and the internet dating company will throw you all these matches. And, you know, let's just say 50% of them are kind of wackos and the other 50 are, are at least somewhat legitimate you know, there's a lot of relatively respectable people out there, but for Abraham's servant here, they got to go about things the old way. He decides to go to the well. What would happen there is around evening, the industrious women would go and get waters for their fa- water for their families. And so there he goes, just looking for this industrious woman of character. And he says there in verse 12, look there, O Lord, he prays, O Lord, that is Yahweh, that is God who is sovereign over all and God who is with us. O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. You notice there that the emphasis is on God's sovereignty, his providence, the steadfast love of God. And he continues there in verse 14, Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down out your jar that I may drink. And who responds, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. Now, we want to read this as if he is saying something like, imagine being single, he's saying something like, I'm going to go to Starbucks, Lord. And the first beautiful woman I see, Lord, please be in this process. When I say something like, the crow flies at midnight... I pray, Lord Jesus, that she would answer and say, or the woman of my dreams, that this would be the woman that I'm going to marry. If that is the case, God, may she respond. So does the eagle at sunrise. (laughs) That's not what's going on here. That's testing God in a way that isn't good. That's testing more like the God of fate. That you, God, out there, would rearrange molecules so that whatever I choose to do, you would make it work out. Bring about the plan that I myself conceived of. That's not what's going on here. The servant's just going about what's logical in the day. Go to where an industrious woman will be, and I'm going to see if she's hospitable. I'm going to see if she's kind. I'm going to see if she's selfless. I'm going to see if she's giving. So what is telling here is that he prays that Yahweh would be in the process of the basic, logical stuff of life. He recognizes that God is sovereign, but yet he still goes about doing certain things, doing what we see is logical here, looking for a woman of character. For us today, that would be like 
looking for a spouse at church. As opposed to thinking that there is some one in the seven billion people that the Lord has selected for you, and now it's your responsibility to find out who that person is in the will of God. The servant here just looks for a woman of character. What's amazing, as the story rolls on there in verse 15, before he finishes speaking, here's the Lord's sovereignty, right? Out comes a woman with a jar on her shoulder. Now, of course, we readers are privy to more information than the servant is. We know that this woman is not only any old kin of Abraham, but that she is the granddaughter of Abraham's brother. And back in those days, there were no laws against marrying within your own family. According to verse 16 here, it mentions that this is Rebecca, and Rebecca is, look at, at that description there. She is a young woman, very attractive in appearance, and a woman of marriageable age. Uh, some of your Bibles might read virgin. There, I don't think we're supposed to know that the servant somehow knew that she had not slept with any man yet. Here, it's also used in reference to a woman of marriageable age. And then the story picks up pace here. The servant runs to go and meet her. He's not even done speaking his prayer, and then he runs to go and meet this woman. And she is indeed found to be all the things that he is asking for. Very hospitable, very selfless, very caring. She gives him a drink. Not only that, though, she does it quickly. She lowers her jar quickly. And then she, there in verse 19, she volunteers to water all of his camels. So you can imagine, here, we're we're getting a little picture about who this Rebecca is. She's a very industrious, kind-hearted woman, a very selfless woman. I mean, imagine watering all those camels. You know, for us, we own uh, two lizards, two bearded dragons, right? If we want to water them, we just spray them a few times, done. (laughs) Right, what's that to me? Open up the thing, done. Right, that doesn't show anything about my character. Uh, But imagine watering ten thirsty camels. These massive animals, I want to call them aminals, uh, these massive animals, they drink up to 30 gallons in 13 minutes. So what's mostly going on, what's most likely going on here is that Rebecca is going down into a well, right? You have to walk down steps back in those days to get to, you know, your average, regular, ancient well. And uh, she's carrying a three-gallon jar. The average ancient jar will be three gallons, typical size. And let's say the camels aren't so thirsty, so let's just say they drink 21 gallons and not 30 gallons. Uh, that's seven trips up and down the well just to, just to drink, just to let one camel drink until they're done drinking. And so you imagine she goes up and down seven, she makes 70 trips total to water the 10 camels. And this must have taken like a couple hours here. This test concerns the basic stuff of finding a hospitable, kind-hearted, selfless woman. Not only does she serve some dusty dude some water, she waters all of his camels. Look at verse 21. Look at the man's response. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Now, frankly, I kind of wanted to read this as in like a creepy gazer, creeper gazing. That's not that, okay? Here he's gazing 
in, in these two hours, not in a creepy way, but in a studied way, watching the girl in her service, most likely learning what he can just by observing her serve for two hours. This person he just, she doesn't even know. And at a certain point in time, we have the resolution to this act. He decides that this is she. He whoops out the equivalent of an engagement ring, which, unfortunately for girls today, which would be a probably a middle nose ring right through the middle there. <laughs> My wife has a nose ring. I think it's, it's definitely not the middle one. <laughs> uh, and then he also gives her gold bracelets worth about four, uh, about four ounces of gold, a hefty sum back then. And uh, what happens then in verses 23 to 26, he asks who her family is and asks if there's room to stay. And don't miss the concluding action here. Being a pious man, who's learned probably quite well from Abraham. The act ends with an act of worship there in verse 27. A declaration of praise. Blessed blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. And for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. There again, you see, the emphasis is on God's sovereign promises or providence as he fulfills his promises. The same thing that Abraham said. He says there, who God is, the Lord is blessed. Yahweh is blessed. And he speaks about God's promises, faithful to his promises towards my master. He's faithful to everything. And he talks about what God has done. He has indeed led me. He has indeed prospered my way. And the angel has indeed gone before. God is intimately involved in fulfilling his promises. And so he praises God. Blessed be God. You get the sense here that the servant gets, in a unique way, what Abraham already knows. And so the servant is there experiencing the exact same things that God was so resolute and having Abraham know and learn. You know, the fact that God actually shows his intimate providential care for his people as he fulfills his promises, right? I mean, this should affect the way we live our lives, right? God, who is very much with us. We're tempted oftentimes to think that God is not an intimate God who wants actually to engage with his people. And we might say, okay, God is a God up there, but he's a not, not a God who is with us. Some people call this deism. And even we Christians, we can even adopt this kind of mentality. I think that God is so out there, but unfortunately, you know, in the midst of when you think that life stinks, it's so tempting to think that God is not with us. But here, and all throughout Scripture, God is determined to make himself known So even if you are in the midst of some sort of trial where you feel alone and abandoned by God, you turn to the whole entire word here. Not just any particular story or one piece of Abraham, let's say, his life. Or even Jesus' life, right? You might look at Jesus on the cross and think God was not with him. But that's where you're supposed to look at the whole entire story of Christ and indeed the whole entire story of redemption And think God indeed is with us. I mean, Christ taken on flesh is the ultimate display of God being with his people, isn't it? 
As he takes on the same stuff of man in order to redeem man, in order to bring us back into fellowship with our very creator. So he becomes like one of us, except he was, he was without sin, in order that he would be with us. Right? I mean, in order for the Father to save his people, he comes down, sends his Son to come down to be with us. Here we see that we are incredibly blessed by God making his presence known. We are personal beings made after the image of God, in the image of God. And so we bear some similarities with even God our Father and Christ. The Trinity, even. We're designed to be personal beings here. Now that Abraham's servant has found a woman of character, he blesses the Lord. This is the conclusion of Act 2. Now let's see if the family is actually going to agree to marriage. Scene 3. Rebecca's family thinks about it. Don't want to let you guys know what happens. They think about it. (laughs) This is in 29 to 53. In 29, we are introduced to Rebecca's brother. There, we should be saying, "Uh uh-oh. Again, we are just wondering when the tension that's brought up in verse 5 is going to come back, right? And so we have an introduction to Rebecca's brother. Frankly, Laban is his name. Laban's a shady character. It seems to, he seems to be driven by greed and opportunism. In verse 30, notice when he goes out to meet Abraham's servant. Did you guys notice that? Look there in verse 30. When does he go to meet Abraham's servant? It says, as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms. He goes out. As soon as he sees. And then he invites them into the home. I mean, in some ways, he's like uh, the innkeeper in Les Miserables. You know, he's kind to everybody, but then only when it serves his good interests. He's just in it for the money. Laban here actually stands in contrast to Rebecca. Right? He's highlighting Rebecca's character here. Laban sees the jewelry and then serves, but Rebecca sees the dust and the dirt, the camels, the animals, and says, I'll go ahead and do all this for you. Well, the servant goes to their home and eventually gets straight to business. Look there in verse 33. He just says, look, okay, I recognize that you're being hospitable. Let's get down to business. Verses 34 to 47 are just a retelling of the whole entire story. And it results in the servant asking him in verse 49, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right or to the left. That is, I might continue my search. And by God's grace, Laban and Rebekah's father, Bethuel, agree there in verses 51, 50 and 51. Look at 51. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. And let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. So the story is kicked off in 24.4. There Abraham says, go and take a wife. Now, by God's grace, we have a resolution with Abraham's kinsmen saying... Take her and go. Agreement is reached. There are no problems yet, although something is sort of lurking behind. But they haven't left for home yet. They haven't left for home yet, right? Once they start leaving, then they know the deal is sealed. This brings us to act number four, getting home. 54 and 67. 
The next morning arrives. The servant wakes up. Now, let's see if they can actually get home. Middle of 54, look there. Now, when they arose in the morning, the servant said, Send me away to my master. In verse 55, her brother Laban and Rebekah's mother, they say, Let the young woman remain with us for a while. At least ten days. After that, she may go. And apparently, ten days doesn't necessarily mean ten days in that culture. It could mean years. So there's a huge problem. What the servant said there earlier is now a legitimate issue. The family might not let her go. Laban seems like he's a little conniver, as we'll see in a number of weeks. He certainly is. And the servant says there in 56, do not delay me since the Lord prospered my way. I mean, here they are responding in, a, in an unethical way. You've got to see this here. They had already agreed to let her go. They had already agreed that uh, the servant would take her to be wed to Isaac. And so the very proposition saying, oh no, let her remain, and then saying, let's bring her here so she herself can make the decision, that is actually an unethical action. They have already re- agreed. So eventually what they do is they bring Rebecca to them and say, let's just give Rebecca the opportunity to make her own decision. And look what she says there in verse 58. It's just one word in the Hebrew language. You see her resolve here, this woman. Not only does she have character, she also has resolve to follow God. She just simply says, I will go. Translated into three words. But it's one word in the Hebrew. And this, this has parallels with Abraham here. As one person said, this is a woman fit for Abraham's son. Right? When, when God drew out Abraham and called him away from Ur of the Chaldees to leave his family and his land, everything that he knew, he says, or it says there, and Abraham went. He believed in God. He didn't know where he was going. He just trusted in the Lord. Now here Rebecca is simply saying, I will go. So not only is she hospitable, selfless, she has resolved to follow God. The main problem is solved. Rebecca herself chooses to follow God. And in following Abraham's servant, she certainly is going to embrace the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. So the main problem here is solved. And as it is solved, we can reflect on the fact that God, again, is determined to bring about his plans and his purposes. The story is laden with evidences that God is behind all of this. I mean, the way it opens, there the Lord is blessed. And the Lord blesses. I mean, the Lord is blessing Abraham in all things. I mean, of course he's going to bless Abraham. Of course he's going to bless Isaac with a wife. He has, after all, already made the promises to build a whole entire nation on him. Abraham says there that the angel of the Lord would indeed go ahead of him. And so therefore, the servant is to have confidence in in moving forward. In verse 40, as the servant retells the story to Laban, he says that God would prosper his way. And then God certainly does prosper his way. And then in verse 48, look there, the Lord is said to have led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master, my master's kinsman, for his son. But did you notice there that even Laban himself and his father and his mother, 
Even those who want to delay the servant, they too, whether they believe in Yahweh or not, it isn't clear, whether they believe or not, they too cannot keep from acknowledging God's sovereign providence over the situation. Did you notice that there? I mean, God is so resolved to fulfill His promises that nothing can stand in His way. His plans cannot be thwarted. 50 and 51, look there. This thing has come from the Lord. Take her and go, as the Lord has spoken. It really reads as if nothing can thwart the plans of God. And look how they bless Rebekah and her future child there in verse 60. It's surprisingly similar to God's covenant promise in Genesis twenty-two seventeen. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand of the, that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. It has echoes there. The blessing reads this in 60. Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. I mean, God is so resolved to fulfill his promises that, he can't, that uh, even these folks who want to delay the servant, they can't do anything about it. Even they are said to be blessing uh, the servant and blessing Rebekah in the same ways that God is already determined to bless them. So, Rebecca and her young woman, there in verse 61, they arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. As we seek to apply these truths to our situation today, again, we need to take courage. What may seem to stand in our way, or in the situations where it seems like people and situations are standing in our way, we must take courage in the fact that God never goes back on His promises. He never finally abandons his people. And again, this is clear with Christ on the cross. Even while he was forsaken on the cross, it was God's steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness towards him, that raised him from the dead. <coughs> so today, as we see the persecutions against the church, as we read the news, we think about the changing moral landscape of America. As we think about this new sexual revolution that in some ways we feel sometimes as if it can't be stopped. I mean, do we really need to fear? In our, ultimately, in our, though our landscape is changing, do we really need to fear? Though, though Christians around the world and even around here, to some degree, are suffering persecutions, do we need to fear or lose courage and hope? when we're faced with various trials and circumstances? The answer is no. So if you're ever tempted to come up with a man-made contingency that you really are banking on instead of God, I'm not saying that you shouldn't plan, but if you're banking on a contingency as if that were God, then I think you've lost sight of the fact that God is sovereign over all things. And that He is so committed to bringing about His purposes in your very life, and making himself known even as he does it. God's plans and his purposes stand. And therefore, we as his people ought to stand firm in them because they're backed not with man-made guarantees, but with a God guarantee. 
Romans 8.31-39 reads this. And just take some time now to, by the Spirit, receive these words as they seek to root us in the promises of Christ. Romans 8, actually go ahead and turn there. Romans 8, 31 to 39. Some Christians call this their favorite chapter in the Bible because of the promises we're about to read. And they anchor us as people who hold to God and believe in the salvation that we have in Christ. This is what it says. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That is the greatest thing. He who did not spare the greatest thing, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That is everything, all the lesser things. For who who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written... For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are promises we can bank on. And all throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, we see God working out all of His purposes and His promises to those who love Him for their good, and all of that in Jesus Christ. Friends, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a believer, you too can know this personal God who made you and created you in His very image. Jesus is the greatest evidence of God being with us. He, Christ is, after all, Emmanuel, God with us. And He makes Himself known, as John 3.16 says, because He loves us. Friends, why would you go about your life thinking that you could shepherd yourself Amen. when God stands ready to shepherd those who come to Him? Friends, repent of your sins. And believe on Christ. And I guarantee you, just as the Bible does, He will work out all things for those who love Him, who are called according to His purposes. Now that doesn't mean that you will be given every single thing you might want. (laughs) Abraham and Sarah certainly had to wait a long while to receive more evidences of God fulfilling His promises, but yet His promises were with Him. And if it requires God to teach you to have more faith even in the midst of death, then He certainly will do that. But that is a wonderful hope because folks one in one die and God will prove Himself faithful just as He did to Christ. 
Friends, God, to conclude, God not only fulfills His promises, He's with His people as He does so, providentially caring for us in all that He does. You know, I don't think it's an accident in the conclusion here that in God's sovereignty, when Isaac and Rebekah meet, Isaac is coming back from a well called Beer Lahairoi. If you guys remember, that's where Hagar was so... uh, destitute, had lost hope. Her and Ishmael had run out of uh, Abraham's household and they had been kicked out. And they basically were left to die in the desert and God draws near to them. Hagar finds such satisfaction and finds such great love and care as God cares for her in her earthly circumstances. And there in 1613, she calls the name of the Lord, right? She names him. This is revealing of his character. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahairoi, which means the well of the living one who sees me. How fitting is it here that God is bringing Isaac and Rebekah together at the end of Genesis chapter 24, and we have a reminder that God is a God of seeing. So even with you, if you face difficult circumstances, friends, God is a God of seeing. And He will not let His promises fall. We might say something. Maybe we forget about it. Maybe we let those promises fall. Our minds are so weak. Our bodies are so weak. Or sometimes we simply don't want to do these things. But friends, whatever God says, God certainly will do. He is faithful. And His love is steadfast. Isaac and Rebekah, at the end there, verse 67, Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah's mother and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. I mean, that's how this play ends. Abraham's going to go on and live a few more decades. And actually, we're going to see him next week in Genesis chapter 25, but after that we don't really see him anymore. The way that Genesis 24 reads, we imagine Abraham reflecting in his old age about the faithfulness of God, his providence, his sovereignty, the fact that he fulfills all of his promises. And just as Abraham was tempted to not believe that, so Isaac and Rebekah will too. The transition now is complete. The promises have been officially passed down and we are waiting the birth of new children. Perfect ending for readers uh, as the focus is all on God, right? I mean, technically, this is almost the conclusion of Abraham's life, but yet the focus is all on God and not on Abraham. The sovereignty of God, what he has done, who he is, and what he will do, and now he calls us to act in belief. Praise him for being involved in everything he does. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are God who is over all things, and in that we can take great comfort. Not only are you the God who is over all things, over all of creation, you are indeed Yahweh, Lord of all, but you are also the God of the covenant. You are a God of people, and you make yourself known to Abraham, to Isaac, 
and to all the other patriarchs, and to all of your people who believe in faith and trust in Christ for salvation, for forgiveness of sins and right standing with you, adopted into your family. We thank you, Lord, that you make yourself personally known to us. We pray, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit, you would make yourself known to us even today. That we would be reminded, even in difficult circumstances, that you are with us. That you indeed are our shepherd. And you even, in your Son, walk with us and die for us in order that you might take us to yourself. Strengthen us for this walk of faith, this race of faith, this fight of faith. For your name and for your glory. Amen.